Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. In 1957, Jack Kerouac published what would go on to be one of the great American novels titled On the Road. In this novel, Jack Kerouac retold the story of his own road trips around and across America through his alter ego, Sal Paradise. In this book was a reflection about life in America, specifically one that encapsulated and really summarized so much of kind of the beatnik generation, their perspective on life in America. And, And more than just encapsulating Kerouac's own time, it went on to shape Uh, the ongoing generations, as one author referred to it as the road trip that changed the world. Jack Kerouac's reflections on life in America brought him all over the place, and to one of them was our own backyard of Los Angeles. Reflecting on Los Angeles, Kerouac wrote, Los Angeles is the most brutal and loneliest of American cities. New York gets awful cold in the winter, but there's a feeling of wacky comradeship somewhere in some streets. L.A. is a jungle. Los Angeles is the most brutal and loneliest of American cities. Los Angeles is a jungle, he says. For the past four weeks, we've been reflecting on the book of Ecclesiastes. And like Kerouac, the preacher, or who we've been calling the deconstructor, has been on a road trip of his own. He's not been traveling along interstates, but going through all of the human experience, unpacking his reflections on what does it mean to be human down here under the sun, as he puts it. And what he comes to is this this, this sharp realization, the stark revelation that everything in the human experience is, as he puts it, vanity. That everything is, as one historian called the city of Los Angeles, the land of smoke and mirrors. The, all of the striving of your life and mine, everything that we're building up for, all of the honor and the fame gained, all of the wealth accrued, all of your wisdom applied and the pleasures experienced, it is all, again, as another author refers to Los Angeles, it is a mirage factory. It does not amount to anything lasting, significant, or satisfying. Last week, if you were with us, the deconstructor investigated why everything is a mirage, why everything is smoke and mirrors, and he found the culprit in the unpredictable nature of nature, the unpredictable chaos of time, the fact that entropy waits for nobody. And he goes, that is why so much of our lives is smoke and mirrors. Today, as we continue with the deconstructor, we move through his little story, his little road trip. We'll find him, like Kerouac, reflecting on the brutality and loneliness in the jungle that is Los Angeles, in the land of smoke and mirrors. And so would you join me in standing as we read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. We'll read this and then we'll all pray for our time together. The deconstructor says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man, that is what happens to humans, and what happens to the beasts, it's the same thing. As one dies, so, the, so does the other. 
They all have the same breath, and humanity has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in their work, for that is their lot. For what can bring them to see what will be after them? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. But on the side of the oppressors, there was power, and for them too, there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both of them is he who has not yet been born and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all of their toil and their eyes are never satisfied with the riches so that they never ask, for who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Even more, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that the youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we do each week uh, for your word. And that as we gather as your people, as we sit under it, as we, as we meditate on its words, that you continue to remind us and provide us with a right perspective of this world. And so we pray that, again, God, as we gather today, that we would shape our minds around a proper way of seeing this world so that we might have a proper way of living within it. Help us to receive the words of the preacher, God, as he begins to continue to deconstruct our assumptions about life that he might put together something better. Would you do that work within us today? In your name we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. Well, unlike Jay-Z and Alicia Keys put it, the concrete jungle is not the place where dreams are made of. And setting aside the grammar of those lyrics for a second, what we find in the concrete jungle is something far more like what Bob Marley sang. He's saying life must be somewhere to be found. Instead of a concrete jungle where the living is hardest. No chains around my feet, but I'm not free. I know I am bound here in captivity. 
In the passage today, what we just read, the deconstructor, the preacher of the book of Ecclesiastes, agrees with both Kerouac and with Bob Marley. Life under the sun is a jungle of brutality and loneliness. It is a wake-up call to those of us who live our lives more or less kind of okay with the way things are, only for certain things like pandemics or the potential onset of World War III to shake us out of that. The deconstructor says, actually, we need to be living our whole lives that way, with, a, with an assumption, a way of seeing the jungle. He looks, just like Kerouac, at the brutality and the loneliness of the jungle. Let's first look at the brutality of the jungle. Where the deconstructor describes in chapter 16, or verse 16 of chapter 3, and at the beginning of chapter 4, he talks about looking out at the world, and the brutality of the jungle is where there should be justice or rightness or righteousness or fairness. Those places where that ought to be, it's missing. And more than just missing, wickedness is in its place. This place of where justice and righteousness would be for the deconstructor in his time would, would be the civil courts of his day, the religious courts of his day. He is looking to the civil structures and systems of his world, looking for that's where justice should be, so that no matter how humans go, when there's brokenness or oppression against one another, at least there's some system that holds this thing back together again. And he says the problem with this world, the brutality of the jungle, is that actually the place that's meant to be bringing justice and making things right is the ones that's kicking up the oppression themselves. In chapter 4, verse 1, he describes this more because he says that, that this oppressive work is not just happening down here. He says, what? Power is on the side of the oppressor. That the oppression that we're seeing is the, the misuse and abuse of authority by those who have it. This is the brutality of the jungle, he says. I mean, just immediately, for most of us, we begin to nod our heads. We find that this ancient book immediately begins to seem to be speaking to exactly many of the conversations that we've been having or the news that we've been reading. The jungle hasn't changed all that much. On the side of the oppressor, there is power. And when we look for justice and righteousness from the leaders or politicians, what do we find there but, but, but wickedness? I mean, you just think through the past couple of years of, of where we've seen this played out. Right now, with big, bad, wicked, bully Russia, we story after story of corrupt politicians. The past couple of years' conversations, specifically at a national highlight, around police brutality, the Me Too scandals, and, and all of this not just being outside within the world, but even within the church. Of scandal after scandal. The deconstruct, not much has changed under the jungle. He looks at the places where there should be justice and righteousness and, and fairness being dealt out. And he goes, those, those are the ones that almost seem most guilty of kicking up the brutality and the wickedness of the jungle. See, over the past 500 years, as we move the human story into what's been called modernity, we largely operated out an assumption that nature and human nature were two things that could be controlled or tamed. And if last week, looking at time, the deconstructor said nature cannot be controlled, right here he's reminding us that human nature itself also cannot be. And so what does the deconstructor say? Writing as someone who's on the, with the perspective of the oppressed, he doesn't sound like the Psalms. When they talk about the oppression and the injustice, the psalmist will cry out to God. Will God do something? Come down, smash the teeth of the wicked, things like that. And it doesn't sound like the prophets where when they see injustice, they call for the people to step in and do something. Chapter 4, verse 2. 
The deconstructor's only thing is he just steps back and shakes his head. I guess it's better to be dead than alive. And even better than to be dead is just not even born yet. Not to have experienced a world where the powers that are meant to hold things together are the ones that are making things fall apart. This is the deconstructor's words. The jungle hasn't changed. Like, I, I, this, I was just reading this this week, and I'm like, this, 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 is my, this is my news feed right now. This is what I'm living within. And the deconstructor says, there's nothing new under the sun. He continues, like Kerouac, not just to focus on the brutality of the jungle, but the loneliness of the jungle. In chapter 4, verse 1, where he's talking about the oppression, he talks about how that even both the oppressed with their tears and the oppressor with their power, neither have someone to comfort them. Both are isolated and lonely. And then in 4, verse 7, he then gives that little story about this worker who can't be satisfied with their work. Why? Because they're working for themselves. They have no brother. They have no father. They have no other. They are isolated and alone in their work. Once again, the jungle hasn't changed all that much. Even before COVID, we were experiencing levels of, of where loneliness within our country was being talked about as an epidemic before COVID. And so this continues within us, a, a crippling isolation that we live our lives within. And that isolation then prompts us to take, I guess, the next best thing, which is just like Facebook groups, where we find these little like groups based off the kind of things that we're into. And we live within those trying to find some form of community. This crippling isolation in our lives that's at work within life in America and under the sun, but even specifically in Los Angeles. Chris Kidd is a Los Angeles-based poet. He says this. He says, see, that's the thing about L.A. When you've mastered the art of feeling lonely in a room full of people, that's when you know. When you've mastered the art of feeling lonely in a room full of people, that's when you know. You, regardless of you being the oppressor or the oppressed, have no one to comfort you. This is the loneliness and the isolation of the jungle. And the deconstructor sets it before us as a reminder. And the thing is, is we now all are primed to hear his words and we agree with him because we haven't been hearing his words for the past couple of generations. Shaped in a world that set the deconstructor's perspective aside. And now here we are on the other side going, no, 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 no. The jungle has continued. And the brutality and the loneliness continued. And so here you have the deconstructor agreeing with Kerouac in so many ways that looking at life under the sun sees the same relentless brutality, the isolating loneliness. But what the deconstructor does in chapter 4, verse 4, is he takes us a step further than Kerouac does, and he names where this brutality is coming from, where this isolation is rooted in. Chapter 4, verse 4, what does he say? Then I saw all toil, all skill and work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. What is the underlying foundation of the jungle is the envy of man. Ellie Kemper uh, from the uh, uh, Kimmy Schmidt, and she also played Aaron on The Office, uh, actress, she said, in Los Angeles, people dress with the deep and earnest hope that people will do nothing but stare at them. And the deconstructor would agree with Ellie and go, oh, but it's not just clothes. 
we do everything with the earnest and honest hope that people will do nothing but stare at us, to be more than everyone else. We bring this into our parenting, our work, our relationships, even the food that we eat and the clothes that we wear, what we save, what we spend. We are looking to be more, and this envy propels us into our lives. Envy, which is so regularly paired in the New Testament with ambition. And man, I, I, I don't know what else to say here other than it's so profound how envy that is paired in the New Testament with ambition, when we talk about ambition as a virtue, it is no wonder that envy comes in with it as well. It's interesting that every single big bad list of sins in the New Testament, you know, and you think of all these big ones of like murder or some kind of sexual, like the things that Paul just seems to be angry about, so regularly leading the list or at the very end of the list is envy. Paul sees, the, the New Testament apostle Paul, sees envy as the primary motivator behind every other sin thing, a pride of self to be more than what I am by grasping after other things. And this is the motive, but, it, but like I said, it's, it's, it's one of the acceptable sins within the church. We see this kind of ambition as, as a virtue with one another. And for the deconstructor here, in the context of the larger flow of chapter 3 and chapter 4 today, he sees this envy not just as driving all of our toil and work. This is where the brutality and the loneliness of the jungle come from. You see, if envy drives our lives, then we will find ourselves so quickly falling into brutality and force and violence. Why? Because we see others as a commodity towards our envy. Something or someone to be used. So whether that's I view other people not as, not as relationship, but as the audience through whom I find my approval, or that's I literally, use, this is slavery, I use other human beings as, an, as a means to my own end. The brutality of the jungle is fueled by the envy of humans, and so too is our loneliness. Because what our loneliness is fueled by is this envy where I see others not as a commodity to be used, but either as an obstacle toward the ends that I want or as an inhibitor, as something that gets in the way, an obstacle or competition to my satisfaction. And so the whole point is, is whether or not you are primarily motivated by that, and that's what's leading you to feel isolated from others, is your competition and your comparison with others. The fact is, other people in the city are doing it with you. And so they isolate themselves from you. You see, underneath all of the brutality and the loneliness of the jungle is this envy. This is the driving motivator that the deconstructor names. And he agrees with James in James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, he writes, What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? What causes breakdown of relationships and violence and brutality within a community? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Envy drives the brutality and the loneliness of the jungle, and it destroys the very essence of who we were made to be. This is what the deconstructor moves to in verses 18 through 23 of chapter 3, that really profound moment where he starts talking about how humans are no different than beasts. 
that we're no different than animals. We die like any other animal. We have no advantage over the animals. We have the same breath or the same spirit or the same word in the Hebrew. And who's to say when you die, you're going to go somewhere and, and when an animal died, that they're going to go somewhere? Who's to say? At the end of the day, humans are nothing more than just beasts. Sharp language from the deconstructor here. But he gives a hint at what he's getting at because he quotes from Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. You'll see it behind me. When he talks about how, how human beings, that all are dust and to dust they return, he's not waxing poetic. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 3 where as a result of humanity's sin, we'll come back to this in a moment, the humans now live a less than human life. One where we die like any other animal, and even more than that, we are not living into what it truly means to be human. This story about human sin is, of course, what more than human envy. What is, what is the invitation in the, in the kind of this, this story, you know, Adam and Eve in the garden and the talking snake? As weird as all that is maybe for you, sitting aside for a moment, what is the prompting call, the invitation of the serpent? To eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, is you will be like God. You will become like God's. You will be more than human. And so Adam and Eve together, they reach out, they take, and they eat. And what happens to them is not that they become more like God. They become less. They actually, through their envy, through their reaching and their grasping, they do not become something more than what they, their envy makes them more like animals than like God. And so this is this huge theme throughout the biblical story that the Ecclesiastes is picking up right here, is when human beings reach out and take, when we are motivated by envy and ambition, and that's what we end up becoming more like animals than like the image-bearing humans that we were made to be. This is what's going on within the city, within the jungle. And so this theme continues all throughout the Old Testament. If you've ever read through the prophets and they talk about these huge like Godzilla mega beasts, and you're like, what in the world is going on? Yes? You can nod. It's okay. Your masks are gone now, so I can see your faces. <laughs> is, is the whole point of these, like, what's up with these super mega beasts? And it's, it's always a poetic representation of the evil and envious, the brutal kings of the day. It's a way of talking about them. When, when kings lean into envy, when they lean into their selfishness and that brutality and justice, it's like they're these mega beasts. Similarly, Nebuchadnezzar, one of the craziest stories in, in the Old Testament, Daniel... In, in the book of Daniel, is he's this, one of these unjust kings, and he looks out over his kingdom, and look what I built. Look at the name that I made for myself. And in this moment, there's this like curse from God on him where he ends up going, and he, he, he basically loses his mind for a period of time, and he goes out and he lives out in the, in, the, in the fields with the beasts, eating grass and living like an animal. The whole point is when you lean into envy, when you chase after ambition, when you chase after being more than who you are, you will not become more, you will become less. And so envy's promise that you can be more only makes you less. The offering of ambition that the city sets before you is not the way that you will become something great, but something, it's an illusion. And that envy is the great enemy of living a good, experienced human life. And so if envy only results in the beastly existence of brutality and loneliness, how might we regain the good life and even extend that further, the image of God? The deconstructor gives two renewals of our mind, two ways that in light of the jungle, I want you to change your mind. In light of the injustice and the smoke and mirrors of the city, this then is the good life. This is how to do it. And he gives two renewals of the mind. The first... 
is there in uh, the middle of chapter 3 what we were looking at right there in verse 20. To remember all our dust and to dust do we return. This past Wednesday, for many in, in the Christian family, they practiced a, the day called Ash Wednesday. You might have seen maybe friends or colleagues with the imposition of ashes on them. And this is part of this practice where hum, humans following in the way of Jesus have identified what we need before us is a reminder, I am dust. I am going to die. And so the imposition of ashes and, and the practice of Ash Wednesday is the kickoff of the season of Lent that leads to Easter is a way that as the church, they, they unite themselves in reminding themselves, I, we're going to die. And we need this before us. We need this perspective shift that I am only human. But the second renewal of the mind that the deconstructor gives is in chapter 3, verse 17. The reminder that God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. The first is to, to remember the fact, to, to accept your limitations. You are going to die. The second renewal that he gives is you need some anticipation, some expectation for justice. In a world where as you look to the powers and the authorities for some sense of true, faithful, righteous fairness, and you can't find it, in order to not lose your mind and want to die, basically, is what he says, you need to have some expectation, chapter 3, verse 17, that God will come to judge the righteous and the wicked. Judge not in the sense of God's going to come and smash everything up, but God is going to come and put things to right. That God will come and do justice in the midst of a jungle that hasn't had justice done. I just thought of Lion King and like Simba coming back. I have a five-year-old and Lion King is a very big thing in our house right now. That's what he's calling for, right? Is living in the land with Scar and the hyenas, right? The world of injustice. No, this is, we're going to bring the kids in right now. They're all going to get saved. <laughs> is what we need is an anticipation. We need to be looking for God to come, for him to come and actually bring justice to a world that needs it. And so he not just doesn't just say like, Man, you need to accept your limitations. You're only human. Part of looking to the fact that God will come to bring justice is you need, he says you are human. You do have responsibility within your life. You do have a, a right time for every matter and work. And so live and try to find that and lean within that. And so the deconstructor and this changing of our mind, moving from the jungle into what it means to be human, calls for you and me to live this life of trust as we accept our limitations that we're only human and to anticipate God's justice, that we are human. And as we live into this, he then gives three ways for us to accept those limitations and to anticipate his justice, to live into the image of God even as we live in the jungle. In chapter 4, verse 5, and then verse 6, and then in 322, he calls for us to live with a working contentment. A working contentment. You see, in verse 5, he says that the answer to all of the toil and the envy of this world is not you just folding your hands and just kind of waiting. He says the person who folds their hand, think of like, you know, the time of harvest. You know, everybody's out in the field, and he's sitting in the rocking chair with his hands folded. He goes, he's doing destruction to himself. He will, he will have nothing to eat. And so it's not just to be lazy, but verse 6 says to live with a handful of quietness rather than two hands striving after wind. This is a working contentment. I have a handful of quietness and peace. It's not that I'm not working, but it's that I'm, 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 I'm content with my work. Because he says in 322 that I am, it is to find joy in his work and in his lot. To be content with my life as it is right here and right now. And again, pointing back to Genesis and the opening pages like we did a moment ago, is this is all about what it means to be the image of God. Mm -hmm. That as humans, we were made to work. 
Work is not something to be escaped, but it is something to find contentment within and to receive that, that we are made to work as part of what it means to be human, but we were also made to rest. We were made to work, we were made to rest, and made to live within the limitations of those two things. Those are pre-fall, pre-sin. You need to rest and you need to work. And in the midst of that, those limitations is what God calls very good. And so the envy that leads to loneliness or brutality with your work, the answer here is to go, my work, my limitations, my life are not something to overcome, but something to enjoy. And this contentment then flows into having an answer. For who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? The second way that we can accept our limitations and anticipate his justice is by entering into a committed community. In verses 9 through 12 of chapter 4, the deconstructor, he lays out for us, on the other side of the one who is isolated and alone and has no one that he's working for, he says two are better than one because it's going to be so much better for them that when one of them falls, the other will lift them. When one of them is cold, the other will warm them. When one of them is attacked in safety, there is numbers. And at the very end, he goes, not just two are better than one, three. The whole point is community. A relational community is where you can live into your limitations and anticipate his justice. You can live into your limitations because as Genesis said, it's not good that man be alone. And that is not specifically and only about marriage. It is about the human necessity for relationships. That that's part of your good limitations is you cannot live on your own. You are not self-sustaining. You need others. And this also becomes the answer to our envy when we receive our need for a committed relationship, committed community, is when we enter into this, we no longer see one another as as a commodity to be used or an obstacle to our satisfaction or as competition in it, but as partners. Where we walk into the community, we no longer see, and we're not measuring up with what I'm wearing, what you're wearing, how much you make, or what you're doing over here, or, or you're in this stage of life, and I'm in this stage of life. We say, oh, this is the necessity of this, this cord being bound together from all of these different others, and making this new community where we don't see one another as competition, we don't see each other as obstacles, we see each other as partners in finding the good life. That we are there for one another, working with each other, lifting up one another, warming each other, maybe not, you know, you know, uh, literally, like don't, you know, crawl into bed with anybody. Like, I'm just applying Ecclesiastes. <laughs> or, or protecting one another when they're, when they're vulnerable. See, this is the place for what the deconstructor calls finding joy in the midst of the jungle is finding committed community in a city of isolation. And this is chiefly one of the greatest billboards for, the, for a local church, specifically one of our size in the midst of a city like Los Angeles. This is what bring, people don't come here because they like Ryan's preaching. Like, they come here because they are looking for a community of people that will be committed to one another. In the midst of the jungle, of the brutality and the loneliness of the city, people that will link arms and say, I'm with you. If you fall, I'm catching you. If I fall, I'm trusting you're going to lift me up. And the whole invitation then for us is to double down and lean into that. But to push through to the greater levels of community and commitment that so many of us stop at. Most of us love the, the line of community, committed community that, that stops at kind of the level of when we begin to kind of bump up against one another. 
And the whole invitation is in all of these things, the more that we enter into, the more tension, the more conflict that we push through, not only is that chiseling us into better people as we work with one another, it's marrying our lives at a deeper and deeper level where then when we fall, in maybe not as big ways, but ways all the same, we are that much more there for each other. If you want this kind of a committed community, the invitation is to lean in and find it. And so for some of you that are new, the QR code on the back, that next steps, I'm, it's, 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 it's a system, but it's one that wants to connect you with someone within our church to help you lean in and find that committed community. For those of you that are, like you're a part of Collective at some level, if you've been here for a while, the invitation is audit yourself on your own relationship to the community. And what level of commitment am I in? And how is that actually doing for me? The invitation is to lean in and to find more there. And what's so profound that many of us often miss is this community then flows into those problems of injustice and oppression. You see, the, the, the justice that is dealt out within this is in the context of community. Most of us talk about, like I just did, when you fall, I'll be there to lift you. And like when you're cold, I'll be there to warm you. And we're going to work together. And we use that to talk about like discipleship groups. And we're like, yeah, man, when you're, when you're being tempted, like I'm going to be there for you. And like that's great if you want to read it that way. And I don't think that's wrong. But the main point of the context of the, of the deconstructor is this is in the context of the conversation about oppression and injustice. The falling and having no one to lift them up is in the con- it's a, that's a question of justice and fairness. Of someone being cold and not having any warmth, that's a conversation about justice. Those that are being oppressed by a group, like a marauder or someone coming after them, that's an issue of justice. And so the deconstructor says, hey, when you are living like us, as he's the author in this time, he goes, we're living in a time where we cannot trust the powers that be, the authorities of the world, to rightly and fully deal out righteousness and justice. We are the people without power to make any change about that. And so guess what? There is strength in numbers. And so the best thing that we can do is link arms with one another. And I'm looking out for you and you're looking out for me. And we may not be able to trust the jungle powers because they are brutal and on the prowl. But we are going to link with one another. And when you fall, I fall. And we get back up together again. So this is a profound vision of of justice that moves beyond just voting and tweeting. But to relationships. And this is something that we need to hear because I believe the deconstructor would be like, yeah, totally, use your vote. But the context of life-changing justice is when you know people and when you're with people, when their coldness becomes your coldness, when their falling becomes your falling, and you have entered into relationships with them and meeting them in that place instead of driving by them or just throwing a couple bucks out of the window. You see, this is the committed community that then becomes the context for relational justice, where we begin to live into what it means to be the image of God once again as we reflect the justice of God, as we put things right through love and entering into the suffering of others, which is the very story of the gospel. All of this harkens back to the story of justice series from uh, last summer, two summers ago, last summer, where we find that the primary calling of justice as it's done by the church is not by chasing after the powers, but by doing justice in the streets and around the table. And that this is the context where things are made right. This is the place where justice is done as we live in an anticipation for the fact that God will do that fully. Now that leaves us to the question then, what about the fact that the powers continue to be on the side of the oppressor, that wickedness is in the place of justice? He gives the story of verse uh, 13 and through 16 in chapter 4, kind of the little closing story that we'll end with here. 
is it's this profound little kind of story parable that he tells, the story of this, this wise and poor youth who, uh, though being oppressed, he ends up coming up and being imprisoned. He then rises up and comes to being in the place of ruling on behalf of all the people. He's a better king than any king before them. He dethrones them, and he sits in the place of his throne, and people from all over the world come to the king who is ruling with contentment and community and justice. There's no end to it all. And it's an incredible story if you stop right there. But the final two verses are a slap in the face. Like every human, that king will die and be forgotten. And there will be no one who will rejoice or remember him in the ages to come. This also, he ends with, is smoke and mirrors. So notice the kind of rock in a hard place that, that the deconstructor has put us in. Because what he says is, on the, on the side of power, that's where the oppression lies. There's kings and rulers that they're using their power solely for themselves. And he goes, but, 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 but. There was this, there is, and this, and you, this happens throughout history. These, these rulers, these people that come up from amongst the oppressed people, and they take the throne, and they, it just becomes this moment of flourishing. It's the better king that's ever existed, and then they die, and, then they, but they, and it's over. And so the rock and the hard place that we're stuck between is we really need a, a good king down here, but is it able to provide us with anything lasting? For all the wise kings and for all of their great work, for all the, rep- the reversals of the oppressive reigns before them, death is the great eraser. My friend Kyle Sheely posted uh, on Facebook Marketplace a couple weeks ago uh, this picture of a random person uh, being sold for $5. Does anybody know who this is? FDR. Imagine being the only president to serve four terms, led through the Great Depression, getting a new deal passed, Led the country through the majority of World War II only for Karen in Missouri. That's literally who posted it. To to call you a random person. See, this is a sharp reminder. This is exactly what what the deconstructor is getting at here. Here you have this, I mean, like, what, what more could you do as a president? And yet on the other side of it, just a couple of, not that far removed. Random person, $5. I don't know. It was in the garage. I don't want it anymore. <laughs> you see, this is a sharp reminder that even our greatest contentment and community and justice, and even when those things are in the ruling places of power in the world, are still smoke and mirrors. But I believe God must have a really strong sense of humor. Because in another poor and wise youth, he flips the entire story on its head. Jesus of Nazareth, in John chapter 12, verses 31 through 33, he shows up and he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show them what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus almost eerily retells this whole passage of what we've been dealing with with Kohelet here, of with, the, with the deconstructor, excuse me. He retells this whole thing. I mean, the anticipation for God's justice, his judgment to come on the wicked and the righteous. Jesus says, that's come and that's beginning and happening right now and right here. Jesus talks about the judgment of God. He talks about the old and foolish ruler of this world being cast out as him, the wise and poor youth, would come to take his throne and like in the deconstructor's words, would draw people from all over the world to himself. 
But what the deconstructor saw as the very, very great eraser over any king, as the great moment of smoke and mirrors once again triumph, is actually the very moment when Jesus' reign kicks off. As we looked at in Mark's gospel, the throne is not something other than Jesus' cross. That is when Jesus identifies as the moment he will be lifted up, when he will draw people to himself, when he will be reigning as king is from his cross. As Jesus goes to his cross, I mean, what, 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 what's happening at the cross there? Are these three overlapping elements of the jungle? The why, like, we, you read the story from the Gospels, and why does Jesus go to the cross? Who are the people that are dragging him there? It is the religious and political leaders of the day motivated by their envy, mm-hmm. who Jesus now shows up on the scene, and it is that which leads to their brutality against him which then leads to what's Jesus' experience on the cross other than being forsaken in the loneliness that we experience in the jungle. All of this comes to Jesus on the cross, brings him to it, and it kills him, and yet this is the moment that Jesus is reigning as king. And as Jesus reigns as king, we see in him, we see the beastly nature of our envy. This is not simply ambition. This is not simply me trying to move up a couple. This is what killed God. And even more than that, we also see, though, that we have a king who not just suffers under our brutality, but bears it and is strong enough to carry it for us. And the God that in the midst of your isolation and loneliness looks you on the, at the face from his cross and says, me too. And the great news of what we're moving towards in this series with Easter Sunday is, is what happened 2,000 years ago in an empty tomb in a resurrected king is Jesus emerges as the king never to die again, never to be forgotten like the wise and poor youth from Ecclesiastes, but to be praised eternally. 2,000 years and there's no signs of stopping. And even over here in our little neck of the woods of Los Angeles, it might feel that way. The church of Jesus is doing just fine growing at an incredible rate around the world. We are in a season of challenge and difficulty to be sure. We don't want to downplay that, but the, the, the church of Jesus is doing just fine. And so all of this comes together in the resurrection of Jesus that continues today is the inauguration of the justice of God, of his forgiveness and putting people to rights, and then inviting you and me into a life of contentment and community and justice that this is the life of what the other side of the resurrection looks like, is I'm able to live with contentment and no longer envy. I'm able to live with community and no longer isolation and justice instead of living under that brutality. As I accept my limitations, as I anticipate his final justice, I, ju- I just speak to any of those, those voices in my heart or in the world that are calling me to be more. Why would I want to be more when I can be his? Why would I settle for the lie and the billboard that chases after and time and again proves to make me only less when the invitation of the resurrected Jesus is a life that though might be death now will not be in the age to come? And so like I said, in the meantime, you and I, the life that we live here in the jungle is we accept our limitations, that we in this moment, we are dust, but we anticipate a final judgment, that a justice that is coming by taking on these rhythms and these practices, this way of life of contentment with our work, of a committed community, of relational justice, as we herald to the jungle that there is a garden coming. Let's pray.